as we come to this last session together. For my part, I want to thank you for two or three things in particular. One is thank you for letting me participate in this event. It has been eye-opening and broadening and instructive for me to be a little bit a part of what's been going on here. I'm really quite amazed and thankful for it. So thank you for including me in this. And secondly, thank you for the encouragement. Lots of you have spoken words that have strengthened my hand in the work, and I don't take it for granted when people come with kindness and encouragement. So thank you for the encouraging words. And thirdly, I'm not unaware that I'm speaking English or American. (laughs) And that most of you in this room are listening in a second or third language. And I just want you to know how, how humbled I feel by that because you know, don't you, that your humility and submission to that makes you the greater. I only know this language. I mean, I, I could muddle through trying in German, but you wouldn't like that. <laughs> Whereas you, you know at least two languages or you wouldn't be here probably. So just know I'm not presuming upon you. I am standing quite amazed at you and your willingness to tolerate in the middle of Eastern Europe a conference in English. That's really remarkable, and I congratulate you. The focus today is on prayer, the place of prayer in Philippians is really quite remarkable, and the place of prayer in your lives. I wonder if in your life and in your family and in your ministry, Prayer is the visible engine. That's the phrase we use at our church for many years. Is prayer the visible engine that drives the work? Visible engine. Is prayer manifestly central to your life, your family, and your ministry? That's the question I'm asking you. The reason that I think prayer must be central rather than peripheral is because prayer is the means that God has ordained for us to receive supernatural help. Without supernatural help, we will not be able to accomplish anything that I have said Philippians is calling us to accomplish. We won't magnify Christ. We won't live lives worthy of the gospel. We won't be humble. We won't count others more significant than ourselves. We won't put others' interests before ourselves. We won't be justified by faith and walk in the power of the Spirit. We won't accomplish anything that is of eternal value if we are not people of prayer. God has ordained to come 
in power through prayer. And if we neglect this means of receiving supernatural help, we can expect powerless ministry. And the world does not need any more Christians with powerless ministries. And so I'm going to talk about prayer. That's how central and important it is. And I'm stressing visible prayer. I'm not stressing private prayer. I believe in private prayer. Jesus said, go into your closet. I'm talking about visible, manifest engine that drives your ministry. I can't tell you how encouraging I've been here that woven into every morning are these seasons of prayer. I go to conferences all over the world. They don't pray for me. And these brothers and sisters over here who lead you in worship, they, they want to circle in prayer. They want to call down supernatural help on what they're doing up here. This is not a game we're up to. If God doesn't show up here, nothing of significance happens. So when you're gathered in those circles and that roar of prayer that only God can understand, I'm sitting here thinking, yes, yes, ELF. Keep that at the heart of your life because my, oh my, so many ministries are built without God, without prayer, Without the Holy Spirit, you can grow a church of 30,000 people without God. Believe me, in America, you can grow a church of 30,000 people without God. This is easy, easy. What's impossible is to see miracles happen in eyes being open to love God more than you love anything. That's a miracle, and only God can perform it, and he has ordained to do it through prayer, and I'm stressing visible, because when it's visible in a family, or visible in a church, or in a ministry, then the visibility shows that we have a trustworthy Father in heaven who delights to hear the cries of his children and is fully capable of meeting all their needs. You make God rightly known when there's visible prayer permeating your ministry and your family. And it also shows you as humble. It's a humble thing to go on your face and assume the posture of a little child and say, Abba, Father, I need you. I can't do what I have to do without you. Wouldn't you just love to see some big, strong, famous leaders just humbly on their face crying out to God that something supernatural would happen in their carnal ministries? So let's, let's look at Philippians. Let's look at the visibility of prayer in Philippians. Paul can't even get beyond his greeting without praying. So let's go to the beginning of the book. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll be looking at it with me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. I thank my God in all my remembrance, you always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. That's visible. That's visible. It's, it's in writing. He's, he's displaying his praying. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. What kind of speech is that? You, I hope you use this kind of speech. What is that? We call it a blessing or a benediction. But what, what is it? How, wh- how are you talking when you look somebody in the eye and say, grace to you, peace to you? He's clearly talking to them, second person plural, you, you, grace to you, I'm looking at you, is the horizontal word here, grace to you, grace and peace. What verb would you supply? There's no verb in that. How about grace be to you, grace come to you, grace fill you, May grace and peace bless you. May grace and peace guide you. May grace and peace comfort you. I'm not sure in Paul's mind which of those is prominent. My guess is if he heard me say that, he'd say, yes, all that, all that. (laughs) Be to you, come to you, fill you, guide you. I think he would say, everything that grace can do for you, I want that to happen. And when he speaks those words, wouldn't you agree he assumes that in the speaking of that word, the word mediates that reality. He, he means that. Grace to you means right now, here it comes. Now the question is, where does it come from? Well, he, he says, doesn't he? He just says, grace and peace to you from God. So clearly, this kind of speech is not just horizontal, like from me to you. Here goes grace. Here goes peace. No, no. It's from God, from God, from God the Father. So the horizontal word mediates the vertical miracle. Wouldn't you agree with that? The horizontal, I'm talking to you. And I'm speaking grace to you, and I'm speaking peace to you, but I'm no source of grace. I'm no source of peace. God is the source of grace, and God is the source of peace. So what are these words? They are means. They are channels. They are instruments by which God has ordained to bring grace and peace into the life of his church. And you happen to be the mediator And therefore, this is a prayer. This is a bi-directional, he is leaning on God, calling on God, drawing down grace and peace from God and speaking it 
into the lives of others, and he's saying it out loud or writing it down in Greek so they can see it and hear it. It's visible. Visible. It's not hidden. It's not in a closet. It's not in a closet. It's in front of the people. He's speaking it to them. So, I thank my God, he continues. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. So not only does he in the moment speak peace and speak grace into their lives with this double direction, but he tells them about his prayer life for them, right? He tells them about his prayer life for them. Visible. I want you to know what I do. I pray for you. I want you to know that. That's not hidden. That's not secret. It's not in a closet. That's out in first paragraph of the letter. I pray for you in every remembrance of you. How does that fit with Jesus' words? Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to to pray standing in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Aren't you contradicting that, Piper? All this visibility stuff, visibility. That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. How does Paul's making his prayer visible fit with that? You know that's a warning. That's a warning. Don't deceive yourselves by using prayer in public to impress others with your spirituality. Don't. Deceive yourself. God knows your heart. And if you make long prayers in public to be seen by others, to impress them, so that you get a horizontal reward, lots of handshakes, lots of, they talk about you as a spiritual person. You get your reward, and that's all you get. Nothing from God God is not pleased. No reward from God for that. So it's a warning. Don't pray in public. Don't fast in public. Don't give alms in public in order to be seen in such a way as to get praise for yourself. I need your approval. Come on, people. I drink your approval. That's what Jesus hates. He hates people who use religion, vertical pretenses, as a means to get horizontal affirmation. Paul, well, what is he doing? He is overflowing with joy. 
<laughs> I make my prayer for you with joy. I enjoy praying for you so much, I cannot not do it. And I can't help but tell you how happy it makes me to pray for you. This is a child talking. This is not an arrogant, I need your approval talking. This is a child who says, I love you. And I pray for you. And it is a joy for me to pray for you. No big sacrifice. I'm not saying, oh, poor me. I lose so much sleep and sacrifice so much to pray for you. Please pity me as the great apostle. It's not thinking that way. He loves them. The joy he has in depending on God's promises, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's just calling it down, dissing it out for the Philippian saints, and he wants them to know that. That's not a contradiction with what Jesus said. It is my prayer, let's go to verse 9, so now we've seen him use a, a horizontal and a vertical blessing, and he's, he's told them about his prayer life for them, and now he does prayer. Verse 9, he does prayer, and he does it openly. <laughs> he, he writes a letter. I mean, you, you probably write letters to people, and I'll bet that you say in some of those letters, I am praying that you will be strong. I am praying that you will be healed. I am praying that your life will be fruitful. Well, you don't need to do that. Just ask God. He'll do it. You don't need to tell them what you're asking God to do. But it's biblical to do that. That's what Paul does, right? He does. He doesn't have to do this. He could just pray this and not tell them what he's praying. But he tells them what he's praying. He makes it visible. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul weaves prayer into his public ministry to the Philippians. A letter is a publicly read ministry to the church, and he's weaving into the public ministry public praying. It's visible. That's important. It's the visible engine of Paul's life. So he prays for their love, he prays for their discernment, he prays for their blamelessness at the day of Christ, he prays that they will be overflowing in righteous deeds, and he makes plain that the reason he asks God to do all that, God to do all that, is so that they will know if God doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. This is, a, this is teaching about the supernatural nature of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, if you pray, if you ask God to give you discernment, if you ask God to give you love, if you ask God to fill you with, with righteous deeds, you're saying, I won't have them without God. 
If I could get them without God, they wouldn't point to God. Who cares? This book is about a God who means to get glory for himself. Means for his son to be magnified in all things. And therefore, this is a book that is visibly driven by prayer. Prayer says God is majestic and holy and all-sufficient and has promised to meet all my needs and he condescends in his peculiar glory to listen to the likes of me. What a God. Prayer speaks volumes about the nature of God in his fullness and his mercy. And it teaches that the Christian life is supernatural or it is nothing. One of, the, one of the takeaways that I hope you have from this morning is that as you leave here, you will be thinking, the only things that Europe needs from me are things I cannot do. I mean that absolutely literally. The only thing Europe needs from Christians as Christians are things Christians cannot do. And that is why we pray. I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Not I. If anything happens in Europe of a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting way, it will not because of, be because of native achievements, natural achievements. It will be because of supernatural work through you. And that's why we pray. That's why prayer should be the visible engine of our ministry. Next, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. Here, he makes prayer visible from the other side. Namely, they're praying for him. Verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, this imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation. That's amazing. I am continually amazed when I read in several of Paul's letters how he makes the success of his own apostolic ministry dependent on the prayers of relatively new believers. That's all there were is relatively new believers. He had planted these churches. He writes letters back to them. They may be three months old in the faith, three years old in the faith. And he says, through your prayers, my imprisonment will turn out for God's good purposes in my life. That's amazing. 
Amazing. He's an apostle. He's chosen by God. His purposes are going to succeed. And he tells them, yeah, they'll succeed if you pray. That's amazing. Just don't, don't miss the crazy glory of verse 19. I am depending on your prayers for the outcome of my imprisonment. I am. I don't care how, what a big shot I am as an apostle. I'm depending on you baby Christians in Philippi to pray for God to work salvation through my imprisonment. Amazing. And he, he said that publicly. He didn't have to say that. He did not have to say verse 19. He said it. He drew attention to their praying. One more passage, the most important one for what I'm trying to do here. Let's go to chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Very famous, very precious, and more embedded in the big picture of this letter than you may have thought. I want to draw out from verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4 how it relates to the big things Paul is trying to do in this letter. So now finally, for the first time, he exhorts them to pray. I think that's been implicit so far, but now it's explicit. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, that's a big word. Do you pray about everything? Everything? I mean, when Paul says, pray without ceasing, that probably is connected to pray in everything. Do you walk in a spirit of communion with God that sometimes consciously, sometimes less so, is constantly offering up thanks, but especially sending up need. I need help in this conversation. I can barely understand that person's accent, and my hearing is bad. I need help right now at the, at the dining room table. You live like that? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In one sense, this command to pray is all-encompassing because of the words, in everything. Do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything pray. You see the connection there? Don't be anxious in anything because in everything, you're praying for what you need in the anxious moment. 
and you're trusting God because of his promise to be there and help. And so anxiety lifts. That's the way prayer is supposed to work, take away anxiety. In another sense, it's not broad and all-encompassing. It's very narrow and very focused because instead of saying the hundred things that God does in answer to prayer, he simply focuses on two things which are really two sides of the same coin. Do not be anxious is one result of prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. So the first thing that happens when you pray about everything is anxiety is lifted. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. That's Peter's way of saying it in 1 Peter 5. And the second thing is the peace of God, which is the opposite of anxiety, right? The peace of God that passes all understanding comes in and takes over and protects, guards your hearts and minds. So negatively, aim by prayer to be done with anxiety. And positively, aim by prayer in everything to enjoy constant peace. Walk through the the world of trouble, ministry troubles, family troubles, European troubles, refugee troubles, political troubles, financial troubles, walk in, in the protection of the peace of God that cannot be accounted for by human reason. Cannot. It goes beyond. It surpasses what human reasoning can do. When, when Paul is, is saying, enjoy peace through prayer, if somebody says, yeah, but how can you have peace when that's happening? Well, that word how has no answer humanly. That's why it says beyond human understanding. Human understanding will not be able to come up with an answer to how you enjoy peace in this circumstance. It is supra-rational. Reasoning doesn't make the peace happen. God makes the peace happen. And he does it in answer to prayer. It's a wonderful experience. Now, let's ask this in our last minutes together. How does, how do those two halves of verse 6 and 7 get rid of anxiety by prayer, enjoy peace with God by prayer, how do those two results of praying in everything relate to the big picture of Philippians, which we've been seeing? So the first day I argued from one, chapter 1, verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I might not at all be ashamed, but that Christ might be magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the big goal of this letter. Christ 
magnified in your bodily existence, living or dying. Make him look great. That's the reason you're on the planet. That's the reason your family exists, your ministry exists. Make Christ look magnificent because that's what he is. That's what this big picture is in Philippians. And we saw that Paul gets very specific. Another way of describing make Christ look great is lead lives worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. That is a life that is fearless before the adversary and united arm in arm in love with other believers. Unity in love and fearlessness, he says, become a sign Verse 28, a sign to the world of their destruction and of your salvation. In other words, when you are fearless before your adversary and you are full of love, driven by humility, counting others more significant than yourself, putting others' interests before your own, when that's the source of the loving unity and the fearlessness, it's a sign. It's a sign to the world that Christ is all satisfying to these people. Christ will meet every need that they have. Christ is all they need. I want to know about this because I don't get it. That's the big picture. How does that relate to the praying of chapter 4, verse 6? Can you put it together? It's pretty obvious. Now, I think, if I were teaching you a class, I would make you write the answer instead of telling you. The answer is, do not be anxious about anything is the fearlessness of 127 and 28. The fearlessness of chapter 1, verse 28 before the adversary, is another word for don't be anxious. When you stand before the authorities in the university or the authorities in the capital, when you stand before people who don't like your position on this or that, don't be afraid. Or, to use the words of chapter 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let him know what you need. All of which goes to say, prayer is the key to this book, right? If, if the big picture of magnifying Christ happens through living a life worthy of the gospel, which is defined in terms of fearlessness before the adversary, which comes from prayer, duh, How could we make prayer peripheral to our ministry? How could we give the impression we make this happen? We have a boat. This is my picture of, of the American church in many ways. We have a boat, and we want our boat to get from here to there across the lake. How do you get there? You got two ways. You can put up a sail of prayer to catch the wind of the Spirit, or you can put a motor on the back. 
And that's the way most churches in America are built, with a motor on the back. Prayer, that's, that's the way they sailed years ago before they knew how to do it with clever leadership tactics and marketing skills and certain kind of savvy with humor and entertainment and the right music. And they just didn't know how to do it, so they had to depend on sails and the boat. We got motors. A visible engine. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Make prayer in your life, in your family, so your kids can see it, and in your ministry, so all your people can see it. Make prayer the visible engine of the roots of fearlessness and a life that shows the gospel is infinitely worthy, which magnifies Christ, which is the point of Philippians and the point of the universe. Prayer's a big deal. Now let's go to the end of 4, 6, and 7. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus if you pray in everything. Are you enjoying the peace of God beyond what rational human thinking can produce? Are you enjoying restful, contented peace with God in the stresses and the sorrows of your life? Because verse 7 offers that to you. Now, how does that relate to the big picture in Philippians? There is a part of Philippians we haven't even touched on. Well, there are lots of parts. A lot of Philippians we haven't touched on, but let's, let's watch Paul. Um, yeah, let's watch Paul apply the peace of God in the rest of chapter 4, all right? And then relate it back to the central issues. In verses, um, where should we start here? Verse 10, Paul expresses his joy that the church of Philippi has revived their financial participation in his ministry. And he tells them how glad he is that they have done this. And as soon as he tells them in verse 10 how, how thankful he is and how kind it was of them to, to, to begin to partner with him again in ministry, he catches himself. And he qualifies quickly, lest he be misunderstood. Look at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. That's amazing. Paul is skittish about asking for money. He does. He does ask for it. In numerous places. 
He's collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Every church he goes to just about, he's trying to collect money. And he's doing everything he can not to be seen as greedy, not to be seen as a money lover, not to be seen as one who has a ministry given by money. So he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be peaceful, content. That's the connection with verse 7 of chapter 4. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds from greed. I gotta have money. I can't get more money. I need money. I can't be happy. I can't be content. Paul says, I, I, I am not seeking your gift. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have the peace of God that passes all understanding. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do everything, including starve to death. Happily, peaceful. By the strength of him who strengthens me. Now, lest you think that this is kind of a throwaway paragraph, he does it again in exactly the same way in verses um, 17. Let's see. Yeah, in verses 15 and 16. Again, he congratulates them for being the financial partner better than any other church. And then in verse 17, four, chapter 4, verse 17, he checks himself again. Not that I seek the gift. That's exactly the way he responded in verse 11. Not that I seek the gift. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's, just, he's got this reflex reaction against giving any impression that he lives for money. Oh, pastor. Ministry leaders, uh, you don't need to be told this probably, but almost everywhere I go, if I say, what's, what's your biggest issue? What's your biggest problem? They say the prosperity gospel is the biggest problem. Latin America, Africa, here, London. It's, it's kinds of ministry with their jets and their clothing and their $2,000 watches that give the impression to the world, oh, it's a racket. It works. It's a, it's a racket. It's a religious racket. Paul is so, so aware of that in his day. People who consider godliness a means of gain. 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. With the peace of God that passes all understanding and takes away your greed and takes away your fear, that's great gain. People who pray like little children and depend on their father to meet every need, that's beautiful and rare. So I'm pleading with you, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, as we say, 
Don't give any impression. Do whatever you can to be free from the love of money. Those who want to be rich, especially rich in ministry, pierce themselves with many pangs and lead people to destruction. Money is a ministry killer. Greed is a great destroyer of families and destroyer of ministries and destroyer of souls. Instead of greed, pray. Let your request be made known to God. You got a need? Tell him. Because in chapter 4, verse 19, you have perhaps the most spectacular promise in the Bible. My God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Take that check to the bank. Let me conclude. Two more minutes. I'm over time, but I'm leaving and you can't spank me. <laughs> Have mercy. So sum it up like this. Let's, let's sum it up. Three, three steps. Step number one. We pray. So these are steps to achieving in the power of the Holy Spirit so that God gets the glory, achieving the big purposes of this letter. Step number one, in everything, we're going to pray. You're going to pray. You're going to build prayer as the visible engine into the life of your your family and your ministries, and we're going to trust. Step number two, we're going to trust the promises of God as we pray. He really will hear you and meet every need. He really will. He really will. He won't always give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. He will. He said he would. If you don't get it, you don't need it. I hope you believe that. If you're about to have your throat slit by an ISIS terrorist and you pray that you would be delivered and your throat gets slit, he gives you everything you need in that moment. That's a promise. You will have what you need to die well. The ultimate secret of contentment here is praying to a God who has made that kind of of promise and therefore gives a peace that passes understanding. And the bottom line gift that he gives is himself. And this is where I'll end, where we began. Chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. When Paul said, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, I think that's the secret. I have Christ. I have learned the secret, meaning I have counted everything as loss. You take away my life, I've already given up my life. Take away my money, I've already counted my money as loss. Take away my ministry, I've already counted it as loss. Take away my marriage, I've already counted that as loss. And Christ is gain. So, the antidote to ministry-destroying fear is prayer. 
And the antidote to ministry-destroying greed is prayer. And I close by simply saying again, make prayer the visible engine of your life and your family and your ministry. And you will be done with anxiety and fear and be done with the lack of peace that comes from greed. Father, I pray for these friends now. The impact of this many leaders in this many different kinds of ministry from this many nations is enormous if you would come in answer to prayer and grant them freedom from all anxiety and freedom from all greed and replace it with the peace of God that passes all understanding so that we show you are an all-satisfying Savior. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.